for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Megan. Um, and if anybody does want to find out a little bit more about Tots being involved in that, um, just speak to Gabs or come and speak to me. Or you can send us an email uh, through the week and be more than happy to, to share about that and, and other ministries as well that you might be uh, able to be involved in in our church here. Um, now, as of last week, we're back in a sermon series in the book of Luke, um, which I'm very excited about. We're looking at the, the life, uh, the ministry, the, the person of Jesus Christ right up close. Um, and uh, what we do usually here at Villages, we, we kind of uh, take Bible passages or, or uh, chapters in the Bible and we kind of work through them um, kind of piece by piece, uh, just to, to work out what God is saying to us, to understand how he's speaking to us now and how it applies to us now. Um, as you, you see uh, from our passage this morning, uh, what we're going to be thinking about in our passage uh, is about Satan, a bit about uh, demons, because really that's what the passage is about. Uh, and maybe that's not what you were expecting uh, when you came to church this morning. You weren't expecting to think about evil and Satan and demons. Um, and if you're visiting this morning, this isn't what we usually preach on every week. But like I said, uh, at Village, we want to understand all of God's word, uh, the whole counsel of God and what God has to say to us. And so as we work through passages, as we kind of go through the Bible piece by piece, uh, we will come to passages like this that will kind of present hard things, tricky things to us. And so we, we don't want to gloss over them or leave them out, but we want to consider them all, uh, all these things in light of God's word and what he has to say to us. Now, it's been said whenever it comes to thinking about Satan and demonic powers and the forces of evil and all that, Christians can kind of tend to fall into two errors. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he talks about this. He wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and heal a materialist or a magician with the same delight. 
So do you see what, what he's saying here, C.S. Lewis? There are really two kinds of errors that we can fall into uh, when it comes to thinking about Satan and the demonic. One is that we can spend far too much time thinking about it all. We're maybe terrified of Satan and that whole kind of spiritual realm. We classify everything bad that happens in life to us as a, a demonic attack. Uh, we might even be someone who is tempted to, to start dabbling in, in witchcraft or in Ouija boards. That's one pitfall. But my guess is that there uh, are far more of us in this room who are inclined to, to fall into the second error that Lewis is talking about, where we give the devil and the spiritual forces of evil really very little uh, thought or consideration in our day-to-day -day lives. We maybe treat Satan like a bit of a, a fanciful, make-believe joke, a little red devil with horns, a cape, and a trident, all a bit silly, uh, and nothing much to do with reality. But neither of those is the right approach. And we don't want to have a healthy obsession, an unhealthy obsession, sorry, with Satan. But, but neither do we want to relegate him to a fairy story. What we want to do as Christians, as with all things, as I said at the start, is consider these things in light of God's word. And God's word tells us that, that there is a spiritual dimension to this universe. Satan is real a created being made by God because all things are made by him. But prior to the creation of the world, Satan, he chose to rebel against God. And ever since that, he has stood with his demons in opposition to God and his purposes. We first meet Satan in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter three. He's the serpent who comes into the garden of Eden. And we see Satan's ultimate demise in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation. Satan is described in God's word in many different ways. Here, here are some of them. They're on the screen with the, the references. He's the ruler of this present world. He's the God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's the evil one, a murderer and the father of lies. He's the tempter, the accuser. And Jesus called him the thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. So make no mistake, Satan has made it his number one priority to lead all of us deeper into sin and rebellion against God, which is why ignoring him is a huge mistake. But as we will see this morning in this amazing passage, we do not need to be frightened of him or to be overly preoccupied with him because Jesus has absolute power and authority over him. Jesus has already been victorious over him and will one day do away with him forever. So with all that as our kind of context, and as we get going in Luke chapter eight, let me just remind you of where we're at in Luke's gospel account because there's this cluster of miraculous events which happen in chapters eight and nine, which they, they really help us piece together uh, an answer to the question which Jesus eventually asks his disciples at the end of chapter nine, chapter nine, verse 20. He turns to his disciples and he says to them, who do you say that I am? That's the question which is kind of hanging over this whole account uh, and these chapters of Luke's gospel. Remember last week, Thomas, he showed us, it's the question that the disciples are left asking in the boat after Jesus has performed this amazing miracle by calming a raging storm with just a few words. They look at him and they ask each other in verse 25, who then is this? That 
He commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Who is this Jesus? Even King Herod, in chapter 9, verse 9, he is asking that question himself. So this is the question which we're constantly being asked by Luke to consider. Who is this Jesus Christ? And maybe actually that's a question that you yourself are asking this morning. Maybe you're here and and you're exploring the Christian faith. You're trying to, to understand what the Bible has to say. And that's a question that you're mulling over in life right now. Who is this Jesus? It's a crucial question for all of us to ask. And I really hope that that as we study this passage and and the passages to come in the weeks to come, that you'll be helped to answer that question for yourself. So as we get going in our passage, we pick up in verse 26 with Jesus and his disciples having come through this storm. They arrive at the other side of the lake in the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So where they are here now, kind of in in a geographical sense, they're in Gentile territory. This is non-Jewish land. Uh, It's a place where the people are not really well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, they they probably have no idea who the Messiah is. And so this is very much foreign territory for Jesus and his disciples. You can imagine the disciples having been through all that they've been through, the adrenaline still pumping, their hearts still pounding in their chest, the questions still a blur in their minds. They step off the boat, and they're probably a bit uneasy a bit edgy. They don't usually come to this side of town. They don't usually mix with these types of people. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they're confronted with this terrifying sight in verse 27. A man from the city who had demons. Now what the disciples don't realize is that Jesus has intentionally brought them here to this place to meet specifically with this demon-possessed man. This is no coincidence, no chance encounter. It's like John talked about a few weeks ago uh, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's one of these divinely appointed meetings that God has set up. And it will provide Jesus with the opportunity to reveal to his disciples and to us who he really is. So that our faith in him is deepened and our eyes are opened to see him for who he really is. There are three things I want us to see in this amazing passage. Three pictures. Firstly, we see a picture of life enslaved to the rule of Satan. A picture of life enslaved to the rule of Satan. Luke gives us an awful picture of what life is like for this demon-possessed man. It really is terrible. Look, look at it with me for a moment. Verse 27 says, For a long time. So this man has been in this condition for some time. He had worn no clothes. So he's totally naked, which in the Bible always implied shame or embarrassment. He had not lived in a house, so he's a homeless man. He's the epitome of a restless existence. And in fact, Luke says, he had lived among the tombs. His is a deathly reality. He lives in the local cemetery among the tombstones. He's isolated and alone. He's an outsider in the community. In fact, the people of this town are so desperate to keep this man out. Look look at verse 29. For many a time he had been seized by the demons, and so he had been kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert 
So here is a man who is completely out of control. Even though they try, the people cannot control him. But the sad reality is he cannot even control himself. Such is the power that these demons have over him. It's a horrible picture of a man whose life has been undone by evil. A man whose existence is not really living at all. He's a hopeless man in a hopeless situation. And it seems like no one has the power to tame him or to change him. And I think what Luke is trying to show us here with this man in this scene is the disturbing reality of life under the rule of Satan. This is a picture, an extreme picture, yes, but a picture of life enslaved to Satan's rule, under the destructive power of sin. And so, as hard as this is to believe, maybe, the truth is, this is a picture of everyone without Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, you might be sitting there thinking, you can't be serious. This guy, I don't see many people running about Belfast like the demon-possessed man. And if, and if you think I'm anything like him, well, then you're mad. I've got a stable job, a good family, a nice house. Me, like him, my life couldn't be any different. But for a moment, can I ask you just to consider with me life through a spiritual lens? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 when he's talking to Christians and he's reminding them of what their lives were like before they came to saving faith in Jesus. He says this to them, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's another one of the ways that the Bible refers to Satan. So here is the reality, the spiritual reality, according to Paul, for all of us. Before any of us come to saving faith in Jesus, we are all, without exception, under the rule of Satan. And as such, we are dead in the darkness of our sin. And so when we think of it like this, this demon-possessed man it's just an exaggerated or an extreme picture of all humanity outside of Jesus Christ, enslaved to the rule of Satan. And if you still struggle to agree with me, let's remember again what enslavement to Satan and his demons looks like for this poor man. How much of these things, how many of these things do we see in our dark and desperate world? How many of these things do we maybe even ourselves experience in this dark and desperate world, shame, loneliness and isolation, restlessness and discontent, a sense of being out of control, a sense of being trapped in patterns of living which lead only to despair and destruction, an existence that doesn't feel like we're really living at all. Those are all symptoms of sin in our lives and in our world. Sin is at the root of all that is evil. And God did not create us as human beings to experience life like that. 
but you still maybe struggle to believe that there could be any likeness between you and this man or between people you know and love and, and this man. But you know, that's because one of Satan's greatest ploys, especially I think here in our, our comfortable Western culture, is that he, he gives us what C.S. Lewis calls a spiritual anesthetic. He closes our eyes and dulls our minds to spiritual realities, making us unconscious to our sin, to, to just the, the, the harrowing nature of sin, what sin does to us, how it distorts God, God's image in us, how it ruins relationships between us. We become oblivious to the reality of life without Jesus and what it's really like. Unaware that the path that we're on away from God in our sin is one that leads downwards only to destruction and death. Satan wants us to believe that we as humanity are, are nothing like this demon-possessed man. He wants us to think that, that we and others we know are absolutely fine without Jesus Christ. But I think that's why this account of this man is so shocking and sobering. Because what Luke wants to do is wake us up to see that his desperate situation is our desperate situation without Jesus Christ. We are, without Jesus, enslaved to Satan, bound by our sin, harassed, helpless sheep, and we are totally powerless to change that reality. Now, I know that's pretty hard-hitting for a Sunday morning. Please don't feel like you need to get up and leave just yet. Please stick around because there is much better news to come. Despite that reality, things are not as hopeless as they may seem. Because secondly, I want us to see another picture of the all-surpassing power and authority of Jesus Christ. And I say another picture because what we're getting in this section of Luke's gospel as a whole is picture after picture after picture of Jesus all-encompassing, all-surpassing power and authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, and even over death. I think he wants us to know the truth about who this Jesus Christ really is, don't you? Go back with me to verse 28 for a moment because I want us to grasp just how stunning Jesus' power is here in this story. When he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So the demons, even the demons, they know the answer to that question of who Jesus Christ really is. They know his identity as the son of God. They don't believe in him and live by him in faith, but they do recognize who he is. And verse 28 shows us just how totally submissive they are to Jesus' authority. They bow down to him, fall at his feet. They're terrified of him. And that's despite there being thousands of demons in this man. Verse 30 tells us that the name of this guy is Legion because so many demons had entered him. Now, a legion of Roman soldiers was thought to maybe be about 6,000 men. We don't know if, if he has 6,000 demons, but the implication is that this, has, this man has many demons. He's completely overpowered by them. But incredibly, despite the vast number of demons, they don't put up any kind of a fight against Jesus. They don't even consider opposing him. Do you see how they speak to him? 
Look at verse 28. They beg Jesus not to torment them. Verse 31, they again beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That's into hell. Verse 32, they beg him again to let them enter this herd of pigs grazing on the hillside. And so Jesus, because he is the one with all power and authority, he gives them permission to do so. We're in no doubt about who's in charge here, right? Jesus is the one calling the shots. And after they're granted permission by Jesus, the demons leave this man, they enter the pigs, the pigs charge down the hillside, fall off the cliff into the lake, and they're gone, just like that. Now, you might question what the pigs did to deserve this. Uh, we don't have time to go into it now. The, the pigs could be a whole sermon, I would say, in itself. But what I, what I do think it shows us is the value Jesus places on a man's soul, on one human soul. To him, it is infinitely more important for a human soul to be redeemed than for a whole herd of pigs to go about their lives in this earth. If you want to chat more about the pigs afterwards, grab me before I go into Andrew and we can, we can chat about it. But here's the big thing not to miss in all this. Jesus is the one with absolute power and authority here. See this cosmic battle between good and evil? It's not like two heavyweight boxers going head to head, throwing punches at each other at different times in the contest. It's hard to know who's got the upper hand. Ultimately, we, we don't know who's going to win in the end. No, it's, it's nothing like that. That picture couldn't be farther from the truth. It's more like the world heavyweight champion boxer versus a toddler. In terms of the power dynamic at play, there is only one winner in this contest. Jesus has ultimate power and authority. It's always been this way right from the beginning. God has always and will always be in charge. Even from Genesis 3, when everything goes sideways, and sin and evil come flooding into this world, Satan is told that his days are numbered. God promises that he will send someone who will come to crush his head. And Jesus comes to do that very thing. Ultimately, through dying on a cross. That's what this story points us forward to. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, it's on the screen that Jesus came into this world and that he took on flesh and blood. He became like us so that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus came into this world to set us free. And through dying on the cross, he, he breaks Satan's power over us forever. He liberates us from our slavery to sin and death. Now, perhaps you're asking, well, well, how does his death do that? Remember at the start, we talked about some of the names that Satan has. One of the names that he's given is the accuser. Because what Satan does constantly, continually, is he accuses us before God with all of our sin and all of our wrongdoing. This is his power over us. He, he brings out God's law and he presents it to us and he shows it before us and he points to the, to the areas of our lives where we have fallen short and he says, do you see? Do you see how he's disobeyed? Do you see how she's gone astray? And the truth is we have disobeyed. We have gone astray. We've broken God's law in so many ways every day. That's true of me as, as, it's as much true of you. 
And because of that, in and of ourselves, we do stand before God accused and condemned. We do deserve God's judgment for our sin and for our rebellion. In and of ourselves, we are powerless to change that reality. Just like this demon-possessed man, we carry our shame. We're isolated from God because of our sin. We're wandering about, restless in this world, lost, destined for the grave, and enslaved to Satan's rule forever. But Jesus' death has the power to change all of that for us. Listen to these words in Colossians 2. This is how Jesus defeats Satan at the cross. You, you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan and his evil forces. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you see how wonderful these verses are? How good this news is for us. Yes, we are guilty before God. And Satan knows it. But God, because of his great love for us, he cancels our debt. He wipes our slate clean because his own son Jesus willingly went to the cross and took the punishment our sins deserve on himself. As he was nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed there with him. He pays for every last one of them, meaning wonderfully that that Satan has been disarmed like a gun that's been decommissioned, all he can do is fire blanks at us. None of his accusations stick anymore. He is no part of us because we are forgiven by God and we have been set free. And so now, every ransomed slave can sing these words and know that they are absolutely true. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin within, the guilt within, sorry. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen? Amen. If you're a Christian this morning, if Jesus Christ has set you free, then this story of this man is your story and how your life has been transformed through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, praise God. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then let me tell you the good news. You can know what it's like to be free from all of your guilt, all of your guilt in life, all of your guilt before God. You can have the assurance today, right now, of knowing every single wrongdoing in life God has forgiven you for because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You can know the liberating love of God through simply trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Would you see that there is hope for you in Jesus? 
Because like this man, you too can experience life enjoying the reign of Jesus Christ. We saw a picture at the start of life enslaved to the rule of Satan. Here at the end, we get a picture of life enjoying the reign of Jesus Christ. Verses 34 to 36, the the herdsmen who saw what had happened, can you even imagine witnessing all this? They go and they tell the people in the surrounding area. And this crowd is gathered up and they come and you can imagine their shock. They're not shocked because of the pigs and what's happened to them. No, they're shocked because the guy they tried to chain up, the terror of this town, he has been transformed, radically transformed. They see him now. Look, look at how, how Luke describes it. They see him sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. This is the position of a disciple before his teacher. He wants to learn from Jesus, to be near to Jesus. He's dressed, no longer shamefully exposed, but graciously clothed. And that means that he's now able to rejoin this community that he's been separated from for so long. Do you see at the end, Jesus actually says to him to return to his home. He doesn't tell him to go back to the tombs again. That's not where he belongs. Jesus brings him in. And he's in his right mind. And that doesn't just mean that he's no longer a a raging maniac. It, It means that his mind has been renewed by Jesus to see life through the lens of his saving work. This is total transformation. This is a life that has been completely flipped upside down. And here again do we see how his transformation is our transformation if we are in Jesus Christ. We who were once enslaved to the rule of Satan are set free to enjoy the glorious reign of Jesus Christ through faith in him. We are restored to a life of worshiping the living God. We are not exposed by the guilt of our our sin anymore and the shame that we carry. Instead, we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God looks at us today, right now, as those who are in Jesus as innocent, blameless, as if we had never sinned before. Our minds and our hearts are renewed, bent towards loving God and loving other people receptive to God's word and his leading, desiring to be close to Jesus Christ. And as we live this transformed life now, waiting for the day that either God calls us home to glory or that Jesus Christ returns, we will live still battling sin every day. We'll battle our fleshly desires. We know that as Christians. We still feel the effects of sin and evil in our world. But we live through that knowing two things. The first thing is this, that the very spirit of Jesus Christ lives in us to defend us against Satan's attacks, to help us to see sin for what it really is, how destructive it really is, and to empower us to flee temptation and to put to death our sin. We do not live as Christians in this present world in the power of our own strength, but we live in the power of his. And we have seen just how all-surpassing Jesus Christ's power really is, haven't we? And the second thing we live knowing is that one day our struggle with sin will come to an end. 
A day is coming when Jesus Christ will return and all that is broken in this world will be made new, transformed. A day is coming, the book of Revelation says, that, that Satan and all of his forces of evil will be banished into the abyss. They ask not to be here, but they will one day be banished into the abyss forever, done away with. And we, those who have been rescued by Jesus, we will be gathered into the new creation sat at the feet of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, and enjoying life under his glorious reign for all eternity. How we long for that day. We say, come, Lord Jesus. But until it comes, dear brother or sister, take heart, press on. As we finish, just look at our passage one last time, because I want us to leave thinking about our response to Jesus Christ. Thinking about that question of, of who Jesus Christ really is. Who Jesus Christ really is for us. There are two responses that we see at the end of this passage. Look, look firstly at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned The people who have seen what Jesus Christ has done, they've seen the power that he possesses, they've seen the way that he can transform people's lives, they ask Jesus, though, to leave. They're terrified of him. They don't want him to be near them. They don't want him around disrupting their lives here. Because tragically, they'd rather stay close to a man who's been possessed by demons and be close to the one possessed, who possesses the power to get rid of them. Please, please don't respond to Jesus like this. Please don't reject the only one who can set you free from Satan's grip and release you to live the life that God always intended you to live. Instead, can you see the man's response to Jesus in verse 38? The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see what Luke has done there at the end? I, I love things like this in God's word where you just realize small, subtle at nuances, things that, that Luke as the writer has thrown in there that we might easily miss. See how Jesus says to the man to, to return home and declare how much God has done for him? What does the man do? He goes away and he tells how much Jesus has done for him. See, this man, maybe a, a limited amount, but he's got enough knowledge to know that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's a hint from Luke as to who this Jesus really is. And the question is, will we get it? Will we understand it like him? You might wonder, why, why doesn't Jesus let the man come with him? Is he being a bit cold? Is he being a bit unfair? Well, no. Jesus has a bigger agenda in all this. He's deliberately leaving behind someone who will go and tell the good news story of who he is and what he has done. So the others in this place will come to know him too. This man is probably the, the, the first evangelist or the first missionary to this Gentile people. 
They've never heard of Jesus Christ before, but now there is a man who can go and tell them who he is. And for all of us whose lives have been transformed by Jesus, released from the grip of Satan and brought under the glorious reign of Jesus Christ, we are given the same command to go and make disciples wherever God has sovereignly placed us. If you're a Christian this morning, I want to leave you thinking about your life on mission for Jesus, making disciples for Jesus, by by looking at the example of Jesus firstly and looking at the example of this man. Go back to Jesus at the very start of this. Jesus, he shows us that he is willing to go to any places, to any people, to share with them who he is and to show them the the life-transforming work that only he can perform. There is no one, no one beyond God's grace. Do we realize that? Who are the, the people that maybe we refuse to go to? or the places that maybe we refuse to go to. I think Jesus is challenging us by his example uh, to, to, go, to go and make disciples in all the places where he is not known. Jesus pursues this man in his hopeless state, the way he pursued us and the way he calls us to pursue others. Maybe this week, pray, ask God to reveal to you Who is there in my life that I could be pursuing with the gospel, to share the gospel with? Who has God put around me who who really is lost, lost without Jesus? The spiritual reality for them is that they are dead without him. Who is God calling you to go and to hold out the life-giving truth truth of the gospel to? And I want you to to look at the, the man as we finish. Because I think this man gives us a wonderful example on mission as well. Here is a man who's been a Christian for five minutes. He's literally only just come to faith in Jesus. He's not theologically trained. He's not trained in the best ways to do evangelism. He knows basically nothing other than Jesus has changed my life. And I want other people to know about it. He goes and he shares it with anyone who's willing to listen. The word for proclaim there, it's literally preach. He goes and he preaches throughout the city. I think there's a real challenge for us in this. Sometimes we can get a bit caught up in the how-to of evangelism. Jesus just says, go, and this man listens. The joy that's in his heart is what propels him to go and to share with others who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Will that be true of us? Yes, it's good and it's right to to think at times about how best to do evangelism, the ways that we can do mission, but let's not get caught up in that. Let's remember what God has done for us. Let's remember that each of us have an incredible story to share. And let's go. And let's share it with others. I'm over time. There's lots more I would love to say, but linking into what we said earlier about TOTS and about Village Connect and about other things that are going on in this community, I wanted to share at the end just about an event that what we're doing around the coronation on the 6th of May. It's coming up. I would love us as a church community to think about how we might go and be involved in that with the people in this community, how we might go and be involved in the things that they are involved in. 
so that we might build connections, relationships with them, so that we get the opportunity to share with them who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us and what he can do for them. Can I challenge you with that and leave you with that, to think about that, to pray about that, maybe talk about that in your MCs this week. We're going to dig into this a bit more. But let's just, as we leave this morning, think about our lives and how God in his grace has changed us if we are in Jesus Christ. Once enslaved to the power of Satan, set free to enjoy the reign of Jesus Christ forever. Would you stand with me now? And I'm going to pray for us before communion. Father God, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. We thank you that, that you love us. That's, as we think about who we really are and what we're really like, your love for us it's stunning. It's not the way things should be. We are unlovable, but yet you are loving. And in your love, you send your own son, Jesus, to come and die for us, to stand in our place, to be condemned for us so that we can be set free. That is amazing news. Lord, I pray we would never Never let that truth wash over us. That this morning, it would just pierce our hearts. That you, by your spirit, would just stir us in our soul, Lord, to, to worship you and to thank you and to praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. For how you have literally turned our lives around, transformed us, brought us from death to life. Lord, I pray that we, like this man, would leave here overjoyed by that. That as we think about going out into this world, that the joy that we have of knowing you and of being known by you would just propel us and spur us on to go and share the wonderful truth of the gospel with others. Lord, this week, would you reveal to us who the people are in our lives who at this present moment, are lost without you? Would you, uh, Lord, give us a compassion for those people, help us to see them through the lens of the gospel, that we wouldn't be dead to, to spiritual realities, but actually that we would, we would see uh, that they are harassed, helpless sheep, but that there is hope for them in Jesus Christ. Lord, use us. Use us to serve Use us to share the hope of the gospel with them. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their trust in you, I pray that today that they would see the, the wonderful offer of life living under your gracious rule and reign. They would see that it's an offer too good to refuse. I pray they would turn to you Ask for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, knowing that there is forgiveness today for all those who put their trust in him. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. You're so good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.